Welcome to the Ralston College podcast. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Today's episode is the first of a pair of lectures and Q&A sessions with Alan Charles Kors. Dr. Kors is the Henry Charles Lee Professor Emeritus of the University of Pennsylvania's History Department and one of the foremost living authorities on the European Enlightenment. He is both an erudite scholar and an indefatigable defender of intellectual freedom. Voltaire, the subject of these letters, is a figure who shows why these two, that is, deep learning on the one hand and free thinking on the other, are so closely connected. The highest achievements of civilization, I would put it, are not only intellectual triumphs over the inertia and indolence of our human nature, they are also triumphs of the will over the regressive social forces of the status quo in every age. Intellect and courage, that is, are necessary to each other. In this first lecture, we encounter Voltaire after he is exiled from France upon his arrival in England. The France he left behind, he regarded as intolerant of disagreement in religious belief, in philosophical doctrine, and in aristocratic manners. In his controversial but wildly popular work, The Philosophical Letters, the topic of Dr. Kors' lecture, Voltaire draws a stark contrast between his homeland and the England he discovered in exile. The dogmatic and axiomatic postures of French Catholicism and Cartesian philosophy find, in Voltaire's account, a counterpoint in the English empirical tradition. Voltaire is profoundly inspired by the likes of Francis Bacon, Isaac Newton, and John Locke, who show him that experience ordered by reason, as Dr. Kors puts it today, offers a method that saves lives and reduces suffering. But as Dr. Kors will show, this whole enlightenment project depends on freedom the freedom to depart from conventional doctrines and attitudes, the freedom to learn from history and experience, the freedom to receive the truth that can come from any quarter and to follow the truth in any direction it leads. We need to recover the same spirit of liberty from which Voltaire drew inspiration in his travels in England, and we need the same coherence of thinking and living that is illustrated not only in the life of Voltaire, but in the person of Alan Charles Kors himself, whose embodiment of and advocacy for the intellectual life makes him a perfect modern-day model of Voltaire's own spirit and intellect. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Thanks for listening. Welcome, everyone. I'm Stephen Blackwood. I'm the president of Ralston College, a new institution of higher education in Savannah, Georgia. And it is an immense pleasure for me to welcome my friend, Dr. Alan Charles Kors, to this lecture series. Alan, thank you so very, very much for being with us today. I want to do a little introduction of Dr. Kors before we we get on to his lecture. There's an awful lot one could say about this this dear friend and great intellect. Uh, Dr. Kors specializes in the European 
intellectual history, especially of the 17th and 18th centuries. He is a great a scholar of the relationships between orthodox and heterodox thought in France after, 17, after 1650. He's published many books, including very notably to be the editor-in-chief of the Encyclopedia of the Enlightenment. It's a massive four-volume series of tomes published by Oxford University Press. He was also awarded in 2005 the National Humanities Medal, and that bridges the second thing I would like to say about Dr. Kors. On the one hand, he is a very distinguished scholar, especially of the Enlightenment and of the history of thought in modern France. But on the other hand, and related to his thinking as a scholar, he is a great champion. I know people use this word lightly. I do not use it lightly here, of intellectual freedom. He is one of the founders of the Foundation for uh, individual rights in education, widely known as FIRE, which in my view has done more than any other organization in the last half century or so uh, to promote intellectual freedom on campuses in the United States and beyond. He is a teacher of great renown. He retired, uh, you'll read in his biography, after 49 years, as he puts it, of extraordinary students. Uh, today, his lecture is going to be on a very important work of Voltaire, uh, The Philosophical Letters. Um, I don't want to say anything more about Dr. Kors here, other than that, for me, he represents a kind of ideal of how thinking and living are united, and how scholarship at the very highest and most intricate levels that requires the freedom and diligence and carefulness of a certain kind of intellectual talent is related to the most fundamental matters of human life and morality. Uh, Alan, it really is a great honor for me to have you here today, and I'm going to turn things straight over to you now. Thank you. It is a great privilege to be here, and thank you all uh, for coming to hear about Voltaire. Let's look at this lecture and next week's at one of the defining moments of Voltaire's intellectual life and one of his most influential works, a work that reverberated throughout the 18th century and that has never been out of print since 1733. The work was published first in English in England in 1733 as the Letters from England and then revised somewhat for France uh, as the Lettres Philosophiques, the Philosophical Letters published in France in 1734. The critical response in France, above all, from the Catholic intellectual world in the 18th century was furious. And in the next lecture, we'll explore that at greater length a little bit today. But Voltaire explained to a friend when the, when the philosophical letters were published about the outrage in France, and he said, it was literally true, they burned the book in front of the Palace of Justice today. Uh, we've made progress in France. They used to burn the authors. This work, which we'll explore 
in its philosophical terms today, and then as Voltaire looks at religion and society in England next week, this work established Voltaire as one of the great philosophical voices in France for what was increasingly referred to as the new philosophy. So first, something about Voltaire, uh, and then let's look at what got him to England. Voltaire, already before he went to England, was a person deeply interested in the new philosophy. It used to be argued in academic circles uh, that Voltaire became a worldly poet and playwright in his youth, uh, visited England, and returned a philosopher. In fact, after receiving an excellent education from the Jesuits, the young man born François-Marie Arouet would move in circles where the new philosophies and tastes flourished, would fall in and out of deep difficulties with his father, who wanted him to be a royal bureaucrat or administrator, while Voltaire wanted to write poetry and plays, and he would change his name in an act of young rebellion to the more aristocratic-sounding de Voltaire and earn a substantial, indeed, a great reputation in France in his youth as a poet, a dramatist, and a wit. In addition, he invested wisely uh, and secured a certain financial independence. In the salons and private societies of the early 18th century in Paris, Voltaire was exposed to the great philosophical debates of the prior century. Uh, he seemed on the verge of important literary and social success. Uh, his play Oedipus uh, had earned him the title as the great tragedian of France. He was being compared to Corneille and Racine. And then an encounter with a blue-blooded aristocrat showed him the limits of his seeming status. Uh, earned him the last of what had been several stays in the Bastille uh, in early modern France. A father facing a recalcitrant son could simply have a royal administrator send that son to prison for a week or two weeks uh, to rethink his rebelliousness. And as a condition for Voltaire's release, uh, after his last imprisonment, he was sent in exile to England for three years, from 1726 to 1729. He left there with deep questions about the nature of the France he left behind, and with great openness toward what he would experience in England. So Voltaire, humiliated, imprisoned, and exiled to England, arrives there and is received by the highest intellectual and political and literary circles 
And indeed, his fame as a poet and playwright is such that he is received at the court of King George I. This is very different from how he left England. He had been at the theater, the Paris Opera, uh, with his newly found aristocratic friends who loved the company of this successful playwright uh, when a blue-blooded royal prince, the Duc de Rohan, uh, saw him and said, ah, Monsieur de Voltaire, how wonderful it must be to be able to give oneself a new name. Voltaire turned and always a person of quick wit said to him, better to acquire a new name than to disgrace an old one. The night after this occurred, Voltaire is dining with friends, a knock on the door sends him uh, downstairs where he is accosted by the Duc de Rohan's uh, bodyguards and lackeys uh, beaten up when he returns to what was an aristocratic dinner. Uh, he discovers that no one will stand by him in a dispute with someone of such princely blood. Uh, he tries to teach himself fencing, hires a master, is going to challenge Rohan to a duel. Rohan simply has him clapped in the Bastille. And it is after months of being in the Bastille that he accepts the terms of his release and exile for three years in England. To go from that France to an England so open to him as a thinker, as a critic, as a poet, as a playwright, left him exceptionally open to what he would discover there. He writes his philosophical letters. Although Voltaire means philosophical in the broadest sense, questioning, not making arbitrary assumptions, open-mindedly exploring the human and natural condition, Voltaire in these letters from England indeed also addresses the nature of formal philosophy. Philosophers, Voltaire writes, unlike religious enthusiasts, pose no danger to society. Indeed, they are the great figures of the age. Think of the changing of values in a society. Here is Voltaire on the comparison between philosophers and theologians. He writes, not long ago, a well-known group busied itself in debating this time-worn and frivolous question. Which was the greatest man, and now a series of military leaders and tyrants? Caesar, Alexander, Tamerlane, Cromwell, etc. Someone proposed that it was without doubt Isaac Newton. The man was right. For if true greatness consists in having received from heaven a powerful intelligence 
and in using that intelligence to enlighten oneself and others, then a man like Mr. Newton truly should be deemed great. And those politicians and conquerors who can be found in any century, a Newton one meets once in the course of 10 centuries, those politicians and conquerors are no more than illustrious villains. And now in an age that's celebrated military conquest, military heroism, and empire, Voltaire writes, we owe respect to him who influences the mind by the means of truth, not to those who make slaves by violence, to him who understands the universe, not to those who disfigure it. The clerics, Voltaire writes, claim to be frightened of what modern philosophy will do to the politics, to the ethics of a nation, to the peace and stability above all of a nation. But it is the theologians who have roused the banners of rebellion and civil war. It is the philosophers who speak quietly and peacefully to the human mind. Philosophy also for Voltaire obviously knows no national boundaries. The French live in a world defined by French philosophers, the English in a world defined by English philosophers. They experience the world, they see the world differently because of that. But it cannot possibly be the case that the accident of birth determines philosophical truth. And the French now must open their minds to what has occurred in English philosophy. Voltaire asserts the superiority of English over French natural philosophy above all the English achievements of the 17th century. He has three heroes above all, Francis Bacon, John Locke, and Isaac Newton. He will make them celebrated in France. Francis Bacon for Voltaire provided the scaffolding of the new philosophy, which later generations inspired by his writing used to achieve the revolution in what we now in our modern time call science, what the early modern world called natural philosophy. John Locke, his second hero as the epistemological philosopher, that is, philosopher of the nature of knowledge, and third, Isaac Newton as the summit of the new philosophy, whose superiority to the revered René Descartes in France 
needs to be known both in general, Voltaire believes, and in its particulars. Voltaire praises and seeks to explain English empiricism. That is the philosophy of knowledge that argues that knowledge is acquired from our experience of the world. But tellingly, before going on to present English empiricism, Voltaire begins his discussion of English thought with a letter on inoculation against smallpox. Letter 11 on inoculation against smallpox is in many ways what will be the philosophy of the Enlightenment in outline. Experience ordered by reason determines us to employ a method that saves lives and reduces suffering. Knowledge is that which can move us from helplessness before forces of nature we do not comprehend and we cannot affect to a natural understanding that gives us increased mastery over nature and through the elimination of unnecessary suffering gives us increased happiness. Note in the chapter on inoculation in England, how he shatters notions of the conventional acquisition of useful knowledge. First, in a France and indeed in early modern Europe, in which who says educated says male on the whole, the heroes of his tale are women. It is the wife of the British ambassador, the English ambassador to the Ottoman Empire, Lady Mary Montague, an extraordinary figure in the early modern world, who discovers the widespread practice in the Turkish Ottoman Empire of inoculation, giving to a child a very mild dose, uh, sorry, a dose from a very mild case of smallpox, providing immunity against the disease or against crippling and deadly instances of the disease for life. Lady Montague discusses smallpox inoculation when she is back in England with the Princess of Wales, the future Queen Carolyn of England. And it is Queen Carolyn who tests inoculation on four prisoners condemned to death. Uh, they survive. And who inoculates her own children and becomes the main patroness of the spread of inoculation, which becomes widely adopted in English society. Second, the knowledge of inoculation transmitted to Europe by two women arises not in Europe, but in Turkey, in the Ottoman Empire, 
among the Circassians along the Black Sea. And Voltaire notes had long been practiced in China as well to a Europe which increasingly takes pride in its supposed intellectual superiority to the rest of the world. Voltaire announces that not only did the Chinese practice inoculation, uh, but that this is a nation, quote, believed to be the wisest and the best governed in the world. And only prejudice, he says, could prevent one from learning from a nation so wise. Another interesting side to the letter on inoculation against smallpox is Voltaire's account of how it arose. It arose from a despicable practice. Circassians sold their daughters into the caravan sex slavery trade. And the more beautiful the daughter, the higher the price. And so Circassian women seeing the difference in value between daughters who had had protection from smallpox and those who were marked with the pox, uh, Circassian women increasingly inoculate all of their children, above all their daughters, uh, against smallpox. It is not by origin that one judges something for Voltaire, but by effect. He is arguing against what is now termed the genetic fallacy, that one may judge something by its origin. Inoculation may have come to England via these two women because of a practice that arose for more profit in selling daughters into slavery, but there it is now capable of preventing human beings from unnecessary death and suffering. It is to be judged by the utility and the humanity of its effects, not by its origin. Voltaire's letter on inoculation inaugurated the French Enlightenment's 40-year struggle for inoculation in France. Just as Voltaire predicted in that letter, the French government, the French crown, turns to two sources of authority for advice on what to do about inoculation the Faculty of Theology at the University of Paris and the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Paris. The Faculty of Medicine argues that inoculation is a clear manifest violation of the oath that every doctor takes. First, do no harm. 
giving anyone a case of smallpox is doing harm. And it violates the customs and traditions and moral boundaries of the medical profession in a way that preserves the world from harm and from being the objects of the greed of the medical world. First, do no harm. You cannot experiment upon human beings. Inoculation, the faculty of medicine resolves is such an experimentation. And the faculty of theology debates inoculation and concludes essentially that human beings may not substitute themselves for providence, that only God gives a disease, not one human being giving disease to another by choice. You can't play God. You cannot experiment on human beings. That remains the official position in France until 40 years later, the death of Louis XV from smallpox. The French court at Versailles, living so closely with the king and the royal family, panics. Everyone races to get themselves inoculated against smallpox, and the practice is legalized in France. So an interesting beginning to a presentation of formal philosophy, beginning an experience, analyzing it with reason, testing it, you save human lives, you reduce human suffering. Knowledge takes us to natural understanding and an ability to decrease suffering and enhance human well-being. What sort of philosophical mindset, framework, set of attitudes opened England to such a remarkable institution? He begins that story with Francis Bacon, who set us on the right path to knowledge by giving us, in Voltaire's view, method. With the right method, eventually, natural philosophical, that is in modern terms, scientific knowledge will be a human possession. For Bacon, method lies at the heart, and he has a metaphor that explains it all wonderfully. Genius is fleetness of foot. Method is the proper path from A to B, from where you are to where you want to be. Put a genius in pursuit of the solution of a problem on the wrong path, and he merely runs impressively further and further, more quickly and more quickly away from the truth. But with the right 
method of natural philosophy with the right scientific method, then even a slow plotter in the world of natural philosophy moves slowly, gradually toward the truth. That metaphor of genius's fleetness of foot and right method as the path that leads us to knowledge and truth is central to Voltaire's appreciation of Bacon. There were four great themes to Bacon's work. Knowledge as human power, that is to say, knowledge of a river is an ability to predict its behavior, to apply that knowledge of causes and forces to the enhancement of the human condition or protection from suffering and the ravages of flood. A second theme, the separation of natural philosophy, science from theology. They are two separate realms. Third, one giving us natural knowledge, the other giving us supernatural knowledge, knowledge of revelation. Third, the method of induction, that the human mind should not assume as axioms, truths from ancient philosophy, and then try to deduce from that what follows in the particulars, quite the opposite. The human mind should move from the particulars of nature to generalizations, to ever higher levels of generality, generalizations about generalizations, always tested by experiment and always open to correction. The assault upon deductive syllogism, if A is true from authority, is B is true from authority, then we know that C is true. We don't want a deductive approach to nature. We wish an inductive movement to what is known in the particular, to greater and greater generalizations and testing on the basis of which science for Bacon is a dynamic, cooperative, cumulative enterprise. With his method of induction and experimental testing, Voltaire argued, Bacon did not arrive at natural philosophical truth, but the path to it, the scaffolding of what would be the scientific endeavor. Further for Bacon, the mind was inherently prone to error, wanting to generalize on the basis of almost no knowledge about the ultimate nature of things and needed to be weighted down in its exploration of nature by induction and experiment. Bacon used the metaphor of the ant, the spider, and the honeybee. The ant just piled up facts, mere crude empiricism. The spider 
spun beautiful, complex, elegant theories, webs out of its own stuff, having no relationship to the things of the world. The honeybee gathered the data of nature applied the stuff of human reason and produced something sweet and useful for mankind. Voltaire's discussion of John Locke shocked many French readers. Locke, excuse me, Voltaire argued for the superiority of Locke's sensationalism, all ideas of and knowledge of a world beyond our minds begins in sensation, sense experience, the superiority of Locke's sensationalism over Descartes' rationalism and doctrine of innate ideas that God had implanted within us certain essential ideas, the idea of God, of matter, of mind from which one could logically deduce the truth about the nature of such things. For Locke, what is most striking, and it is what Voltaire so admires in his work, an understanding of the limits of human knowledge. Voltaire presents Locke as a man who studies not what the mind is, which is unknowable, what apart from our experience the mind is, but we only know the mind from our experience. And Locke for Voltaire is a man who studies how the mind actually behaves instead of vainly theorizing about its substance or nature. Descartes' great vision was that we could know the real nature of things, the real essence of mind, what it was apart from our experience of it, the real nature of matter, of body, what it was apart from our experience. It, Locke denies the ability of the human mind to reach such knowledge. All we know is what Locke calls the nominal essence of mind and matter, how we know them in human experience. There is thus at the beginning of all serious philosophy, the need to admit ignorance. Voltaire defends Locke's scandalous for the time argument that philosophical skepticism and admission of ignorance is the only honest conclusion in metaphysical matters, matters that seek knowledge beyond our experience of the world, even on the issue of whether or not matter might be capable of thought. Voltaire will write I am proud to be as ignorant as John Locke, close quote. I do not know what mind is. I can study how mind behaves. 
The invitation then is to study what can be known through human experience. For Voltaire, Locke teaches us to avoid irresolvable metaphysical questions about which thinkers have argued for millennia without the ability to produce, except by coercion, assent, and instead to study ourselves and the world around us through the limited natural faculties that we possess. God chose to limit us to five senses. Those are the doors and windows to our ability to understand the natural world. Other thinkers, Voltaire writes, starting in antiquity, wrote novels about the mind. John Locke sought to write the history of the human mind. He does not make what philosophers would call ontological claims about mind. Ontology is the science of being. What is a mind really? Beyond our experience, what is mind composed of? Those for Voltaire have been novels about the mind. Locke is writing its history. Ontology, now I remember where I was, ontology is the science of being. What is mind? Epistemology is the science of human knowledge, the science of knowledge. And Voltaire's claim is not that mind cannot be X or cannot be Y. It is not an ontological argument. It is an epistemological argument that we do not know what mind is. Faced with the objection that to argue that the human body might be capable of thought if we do not know that real matter and real mind are distinct, Voltaire frames the argument this way. You, in your arrogance, are the impious ones. I am the humble one because you are claiming to know from your human philosophy that God himself in his omnipotence is incapable of giving matter the capacity to think. How extraordinary that Christian philosophers are willing to say that God himself could not endow matter with the capacity of thought. The proper philosophical humility is to move from ontological claims to epistemological claims that we cannot know from our experience of mind what beyond our experience underlies that mind and constitutes its actual reality. Dramatically, Voltaire undertakes the popularization of Newton in France. 
Newtonian science for Voltaire is the telling fruit of Lockean empiricism. Newton's substantive accomplishment, which he attempts to explain to French readers, was nothing less than the application by the genius of Newton, of Lockean empiricism and Baconian method to the study of nature. Newton is an astonishing figure to minds that come to know his work in the late 17th and early 18th centuries. In the 18 months that followed his receipt of a bachelor's degree at the age of 23, 24, Newton formulated the law of gravity, formulated his three laws of motion, the essential laws of mechanics that would govern Western physics, applying everywhere except when I play billiards or pool. Newton created the infinitesimal calculus, laid the foundation of modern optics with his experimental discovery of the composition of light. All in 18 months. What method he is using must be for Voltaire, the key to the further expansion of human knowledge. There is such great confidence to be put in the method caught up in this achievement. And his work, The Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy, in which he articulates the system of gravitation and the laws of motion, that for Voltaire is a paradigmatic work. That is to say that because of what it achieves substantively, it carries its method along with it. Observation, induction, mathematization of motion, predictive value, experiment. Given Newton, God did not intend us for ignorance of the natural world. And we now had a method that we knew was the means by which we should use our minds. Voltaire had great respect for Descartes, brilliant mathematician, creator of analytic geometry, someone who exposed in Voltaire's wonderful phrase, the counterfeit in ancient philosophy, but was not able to mint true currency himself. France has been won over to Cartesian. Descartes' followers are known as Cartesians. The philosophy of Descartes is Cartesian philosophy. France has been won over by the Cartesians and Voltaire now inaugurates the Newtonian versus Cartesian debates in France. For the Cartesians, there is something mystical and preposterous about the Newtonian system. Action at a distance. A void in which there are two objects with nothing between them that act upon each other. To the Cartesians, that seemed a revival 
of mysterious occult forces that an authentic philosophy should drive from philosophical language. To understand the Cartesians, think of a play being staged at the Paris Opera at night. And there's a thin string that no one can see that raises the moon at an appropriate moment. And the audience goes, ooh and ah. And children in the audience would think, oh, that's by magic. But for the Cartesians, no. If there is motion, you know that there is matter directly causing it. The string pulling up the moon, which obviously could not do that by itself. Making fun of other philosophies, Moliere in his play Le Médecin Malgré Louis has the medical student at his doctoral exam being asked, why does opium put one to sleep? He answers, because of its dormitive power. And the Cartesians chuckled. He doesn't know why opium puts one to sleep. He can't follow its effects in the central nervous system. And so you get this occult hidden quality that's supposed to be an explanation. To the Cartesians, Newtonian gravity sounds just like that. Why do the planets keep their orbits around the sun? Because of the power of gravity. The Newtonians are unable to explain why the force of gravity should operate. They are unable to deduce it in any way or experimentally discover it as following from this or that property of matter. But the Newtonians make a virtue of the absence of an explanation. They will argue that science does not explain from God's perspective why the universe is as it is, why the forces and substances in nature are there, what science, natural philosophy can do is explain the how. That gravity operates. It can demonstrate. Why gravity should be there as a force of nature, that is known by God. It is not given to us by scientific experiment. And so Voltaire will leave England having dramatically made the case for an English empirical sensationalist philosophical system that will be judged by its effects, its ability to explain, and its ability to provide us with knowledge that both illuminates the world and above all, knowledge that allows for human mastery in reducing human suffering and in increasing the well-being of our species. It is a very dramatic 
moment. The fire that will rain down upon Voltaire will be because of his treatment of religion and government and society, and we will turn to that next week. But what he has done to French philosophical debate and setting the tone of what will grow to be the French Enlightenment by his presentation of English philosophy is one of the monumental achievements of the human mind in the early modern period. Thank you, and I look forward to discussion. Thank you very much, Alan, for that marvelous lecture, which has already got me very keen to hear the sequel, which uh, everyone should know will happen next week in the same time and place. But we're now going to turn to questions. We have some marvelous questions that have been sent in. Uh, all of you listening, please know that you can simply on Zoom go to the Q&A button and send a question in. And, and Dr. Kors and I will do our best to get to as many of them as possible. Alan, you've given this wonderful account of this monumental achievement, and you started with this uh, letter, uh, 11, I think it is, on smallpox. And the overriding argument there is that knowledge is connected to human flourishing, that the discovery of this vaccine is able to improve lives and improve happiness uh, overall, let's say. What would Voltaire make of the argument that as is sometimes argued today, knowledge is merely a construct. It's not, it's not really based in objectivity. That assertion of objectivity is, is itself merely another form of coercion. Uh, it is very striking in the 17th and 18th century how it is discovery of real truth never uh, an artificial construct that is going on in natural philosophy. When Johannes Kepler arrived at his third law of planetary motion in the early 17th century, he introduced the third law by saying that he will now let himself go in divine rage over what he has discovered he says, my reader may not come for a hundred years or a thousand years. Hasn't God waited 5,000 years for a human mind to gaze upon his work with understanding? And that is the sense that animates Kepler, Galileo, Descartes, Newton, Voltaire, for the first time in the history of human life on this planet, armed with proper method, human beings are looking at the actual nature of the world's behavior. And if they limit themselves to knowledge that can be acquired and demonstrated empirically, if they abate their metaphysical claims about the nature of the physical universe 
in which we find ourselves, they actually can look upon the laws and structures by which God governs and had created this universe. So there is no sense that, yeah, Newton can demonstrate, unlike others, the tides, but it's just the construct. We have to leave that to the wisdom or lack thereof of the modern age. Thank you, Alan. I'd like to ask a dig a, a little bit into Voltaire's own method. There's a wonderful question here from one of our listeners. And, and she writes, given how methodologically fundamental and important the 11th and 12th letters are, which she says she's glad you had us begin with this week, why didn't Voltaire place those as the opening letters instead beginning with letters about religion and politics? Oh, that's a, that's a wonderful question. One, when Christian Europe in the 17th, 18th century looked at another place or another time, the first question it asked, the now let me have a sense of who these people really are, was what's their religion? What do they believe about God? How do they worship God? And how have they organized their society? Voltaire is going to present what will capture the attention of the ordinary educated French reader of the 18th century. He is going to introduce you to this land of non-Catholic, Protestant, religiously tolerant, above all compared to France, England. And in fact, he begins it with the, what for the, for the French is a bizarre cult, the Quakers. So when we come back next week, we'll see that he entices the French reader in with, look at this exotic country and look at this exotic religion that flourishes there. That's the way a missionary would have approached a visit to a coast in Asia. That's the way a French traveler would have approached a visit to an Islamic country. Uh, and it's how Voltaire approaches uh, his visit to France. He is leading up to a positive view of religiously pluralistic tolerant society that has learned to limit monarchical and central power and to free the energies of individuals. And he is going to say that is what is compatible with a philosophical outlook on the world that is concerned with real knowledge, real possibility, and real improvement of the human condition and diminution of human suffering. So, he begins with what would draw the French reader in. As part of that also, and you'll see this next week, those of you who, who read those opening letters on religion and society, in, in the narrative voice of Voltaire, 
in the first, second, third letters, you meet a naive, very Catholic Frenchman who's utterly scandalized by the religions, the religious tolerance, the religious practices in England. And that voice will become increasingly self-confident, will become increasingly a voice that really is trying to teach France and that moves from sounding journalistic in the opening chapters um, to these learned chapters on English philosophy. I'm very keen to ask you more about Voltaire's own formation because we, this confidence in a sort of free thinking is one that seems to me very apropos of our own situation today and indeed in any day. And we have a number of questions here that touch on, on that. Let me begin with this one, because this you've really given us such a thrilling sense of the, as it were, revolutionary power of this standpoint. I know revolutionary is an ambiguous word to use here, but it, the sense that the human being it can discover these independent of authority can encounter the truth of the world. There's a question here picking up in exactly this character of Voltaire's standpoint. The questioner says, science is anti-aristocratic in the sense that it allows anyone of any class to make a contribution to the world in his own basement if he wants. One thinks of Michael Faraday, electromagnetism discoverer who had no formal schooling but shaped the world. Is this in part what Voltaire finds compelling about it as an anti-authoritarian force? Uh, that's a very interesting and wonderful question. Um, Voltaire, as you'll see after next week's readings, uh, even more so, Voltaire is indeed anti-aristocratic, the simplest way to put it. Um, he believes in, in merit and absent aristocratic birth, and for that matter, absent the degree from an early modern university uh, in philosophy or theology, he believes that the trained human mind is capable with proper method of sorting out claims of truth about the world. Uh, can be convinced by experimental proof, experimental demonstration. And there is this sense in Voltaire, uh, both in the intellectual world and in the political world, you'll see, uh, and in the social world, um, of moving from title and, and credential. Uh, you'll note in the chapter on inoculation, when he says of Queen Carolyn, the bounty that she gave the world by inoculation, the way he phrases that is, despite all her titles and crowns, this princess was born to encourage the well-being of mankind, right? Despite all the titles. So you judge individuals in their pursuit of truth the way you would judge, uh, make judgments among philosophers, do they convince one by rational use of knowledge of the world and data? I fear I've wandered from your questions. 
not at all. The uh, the whole claim here is fundamentally anti-coercive. And I want to uh, delve into that with this next question, which pertains also to how free thinking is cultivated. Um, the question is, Voltaire questioned the authority of many, but in order to do that, he had to first ask the questions that would make his arguments sound. How do you ask the right questions? Uh, that's a that's a absolutely wonderful question. That person's asked no knew how to ask the right question. <laughs> for for the early modern world that has absorbed the lessons of Descartes, Galileo, Kepler, Newton, Locke, one of the most salient aspects of confronting and accepting so much of the new philosophy is coming to a belief that the presumptive authority of the past is not an appropriate model for human knowledge. It is a rejection of the presumptive authority of the past, not of authority per se, but it is not its antiquity. It is not how many people embraced it before that constitute its claim upon your mind. Well, rejecting the presumptive authority of the past, you have to question virtually everything. Let's look at the French new philosophers whom Voltaire is trying to wean from Descartes uh, over to, to British empiricism. What do they encounter in Descartes? They encounter in Descartes a mind that says, since the goal of this philosophy is to see if we can establish truth, we can't assume it. And we have to begin by rejecting, not in our practical lives, but in our philosophical inquiries, by rejecting everything that we have been taught about the world, its nature, the operations in mind, philosophical method, and see if we can establish truth wholly independent of prior authority. There is a, an ossified Aristotelian tradition that is there in the 17th and into the 18th century for whom citation of Aristotle, Aristotle said so, and you, you cite where and when in the metaphysics or the physics, Aristotle said so is a compelling argument. For Descartes, philosophy must begin in doubt, the rejection of the presumptive authority of the past, and it must question everything involved in prior claims upon its belief. He exempts religion from that, Descartes, but he has opened all of natural philosophy to the need to reframe all questions. You spoke earlier about uh, Voltaire's admiration of Locke and Locke's sense of the limits of knowledge. And there's a, there's a deep sense there of, of humility, really, of intellectual humility about the acknowledgement of what we do not know, the acknowledgement of our ignorance, I think is something like how you put it. 
Alan. And I suppose my question is, how do you balance that skepticism in relation to the past, let's say, or what people say they learned in the past with, uh, on the other hand, not sort of tearing it all down, let's say the burn it all down radicalism that, uh, that is another deep instinct in, in human nature. Uh, would, would Voltaire say, well, listen, one of these things is really about thinking, and we don't simply go out and tear things down uh, because we're submitting claims of the past to a radical intellectual skepticism, but rather that this is uh, distinct or doesn't lead immediately to uh, to an iconoclasm in, uh, in in practice? Or how would he how would he handle that? No, I, I think you stated it uh, exactly, exactly correctly there. Po- pose your question exactly, just synoptically, exactly the way you first stated it. How would Voltaire balance the need for intellectual uh, skepticism uh, on the one hand with the uh, need not to act out of our ignorance uh, and tearing down things we do not necessarily understand. Right. Uh, as I say, I think you've gotten that, and the question gets it exactly right. For Voltaire, and indeed for almost all thinkers of the French Enlightenment that will follow, these are issues that are preliminary to any action in the world. One needs a clear intellectual understanding. One has to refine the use of the human mind. One has to begin the systematic study of nature and apply it to areas it's never been applied to before. So in France, the application of empirical knowledge to agriculture, to crop yield, to the purification of water and the testing of the safety of water. These are huge things that come from a clarity of knowing how to acquire and, and apply knowledge. The issue of extending that to society in general, to to tearing things down um, is so far from a Voltaire and an enlightenment that worries extraordinarily about violence and abuse of power, above all from those who are exercising power and the safeguards against those abuses you never, never would tamper with. So this is an intellectual project to precede a civilizational project, if you will. But there are times when you change behaviors. The evidence for inoculation is absolutely clear, and we know better how to dam rivers. We're not tearing down. Um, What we're doing is enhancing uh, the opportunities and the quality of, of human life. But you have hit exactly upon what Voltaire's critics in France will argue. The response to the philosophical letters is furious. And you look at reviews at the calmest, most learned French Jesuit and other Catholic journals in France, and reviewers are saying philosophical letters. What is a philosophical? a man who would tear down everything, who would break our respect for our traditions, our customs, our French ways. 
another reviewer says, look at this criminal letter on inoculation. The French know how to submit to providence, not how to challenge it. The, the critique of Voltaire is precisely that he has opened the door to nihilism and destruction, that he's going to lose, his readers will lose respect for those essential beliefs and truths and practices and customs uh, that depend for their, for their truth upon how useful they have been since antiquity to human beings. If you look at people defending Aristotle's physics in the late 17th, early 18th century, they'll say, look, this was taught in the schools for hundreds and hundreds of years by the most brilliant minds of Christendom who would have seen a flaw or error if there had been such. Well, there aren't challenges to Euclid. There are challenges to Aristotelian physics. Why are there no challenges to Euclid? It not only stands the test of time, it stands the test of new examination. That is not true of Aristotelian physics. But his critics will say, this is an invitation to sedition. If a society loses the respect it has for what it has inherited, it will tear everything down. I'll, I'll provide some of those quotations in the lecture next week. Uh, and it's exactly what Voltaire will be accused of. Incidentally, you, you spoke in general of his intellectual life. I don't think I said this at the beginning, but Voltaire is going to write until he uh, his last year. He dies at the age of 84. Voltaire's collected works take up more than 100 dense volumes of published works and more than 100 thick volumes of correspondence. Um, he is one of the most prolific authors in the history of the West, in the history, I suspect, of the world. I'm so, uh, I'm just so deeply inspired by this, this claim that I also believe is true, which is that power and majority opinion has no inherent claim on truth at all. A single individual can apprehend something against all the political or social power in the world or all the majority and be right in what she or he sees. Um, I want to ask you next, Alan, about morality. You recounted this really, really chilling anecdote about Voltaire's quip to the Duc de Rouen, which is, of course, hilarious. Uh, better to have invented a new name than to have disgraced an old one. Uh, you couldn't hear me laughing uh, because I was muted on Zoom. But uh, but the, this chilling after effect where the Duke's uh, lackeys and bodyguards come to really to, to, to beat him up and no one will stand with him, despite what seems to me sort of self-evidently the justice of, of the cause. Um, so the question is, what would... Voltaire say about morality, and can we know moral truths through the same, the same method as we can know truths about 
nature, would he argue that there is a necessity to uh, take certain kinds of moral action based on what we know, or would he be agnostic on that question? I think what one sees, and and this will be reinforced uh, next week, but what one sees in the philosophical letters is an absolute commitment to a utilitarian ethic that morally we are to judge things by their consequences in terms of enhancing the human condition and the reduction of human suffering. So if one if one asks, take the critical chapter on inoculation, what's the unspoken ethical criterion there? The unspoken ethical criterion is it saves lives, it eliminates suffering. And I think one finds that ethical criterion underlying every chapter um, of this work. But that that is not a particularly um, in enlightenment view. John Locke in the 17th century argues that God had harmonized what he considered, what he considered to be virtue with the real causes of human well-being. So you could reach your ethical criterion either by knowing the mind of God, if you thought yourself capable of doing that, or by examining the real causes of human flourishing and the real causes of human pain and suffering. And Bishop Joseph Butler, the most eminent moral theologian of uh, Anglican life of British philosophy in the 18th century, Bishop Butler will say that God has made our moral duty and our self-interest perfectly coincident. So that is an early modern title current, that since we learn from experience, that means we also learn ethics from experience, unless we have a source that tells us God's mind and what God wills in terms of ethics. Um, we learn from experience. We associate things that give us pleasure and reduce pain with the good, things that cause pain uh, with, with evil, and arrive at a knowledge of good and evil through the magnificent constitution of the world by God, by studying what is in the interest of humankind. And Voltaire is very much a part of that same ethical wave. If I can go back for one moment to this question of, of ignorance, and, and the I'm, I'm proud to be as ignorant as, as John Locke, Locke claims we can't know whether mind is spiritual or material. We don't know the nature of spirit. We don't know the nature of matter. We just know how mind behaves. We know how matter behaves. Uh, but we know when Locke writes on ethics that he, and when he writes on, on the human mind, that he does believe the mind to be spiritual. We just don't know that. But he writes as if there is matter and a separate substance mind. So ontologically, we can't know 
the nature of mind or matter. We are ignorant of that. Epistemologically, we can study how they behave, but it's equally inconceivable to Locke, ultimately, that matter is capable of thought. So when he writes about mind, he tends to write about it as a separate substance. What did Voltaire operationally believe? When I was an undergraduate, I had the great fortune of studying with maybe the greatest Voltaire scholar of the last uh, 100 years, uh, Ira Wade, a magnificent scholar. And I was trying to pin Voltaire down about what he actually believed about the soul and could it be immortal. And I found him writing to people he normally is very honest with different things about that. So I compiled all of Voltaire's letters on is the soul immortal, taking different positions, and took these into Professor Wade's office. And I showed it to him. I said, what do you make of this? And he said, well, Alan, I'll explain it to you. That every morning Voltaire would wake up, sit on the edge of his bed, scratch his head and say, what can I do to confuse Ira Wade this morning? Uh, and Voltaire always has the last laugh. Given his heterodoxy and the risks these posed, Voltaire has to mask so much of his meaning. So much of his style is ironic with deliberate double meanings. He's attempting to affect multiple audiences. He wants his devout Catholic readers to embrace religious toleration to the fullest extent they can. He wants his unbelieving readers to reach much more radical conclusions, but he wants to affect them both, and there are ambiguities to the man's mind itself, as illustrated by the Ira Wade, what do you make of this phenomenon? Uh, there is not any will to consistency in Voltaire. And reading him looking for a will to consistency is much less rewarding than following him as he changes his tone depending on who's the interlocutor, what's the circumstance, what's the moment of time. Uh, he is an overflowing thinker, and it's quite remarkable to study him. Yeah, I wanted to ask you actually about the, the role of humor in his rhetorical style and in the building of the argument, because it's such a pleasure to read his unbelievably dry wit uh, at work, the 13th uh, letter on, on Mr. Locke. It's, uh, uh, it's indeed right there at the end of the first paragraph of the 13th letter. Before his time, great philosophers had announced unequivocally what constitutes the soul of man. But since they knew nothing about it, it is understandable that all had different opinions. I mean, just absolutely ferocious wit, you know, whether that's fair or not, even uh, the the dynamism and the acerbity of the wit. Uh, what is the role of, of humor in the, in, in what role does humor play in Voltaire's ability to make a powerful argument? That's a superb question. And 
I think it is at the heart of what we call Voltairean in terms of a style. If you can get someone to laugh at something they had thought of as sacred, I don't mean that even necessarily in a religious sense at all, right? A sacred cow. Uh, if you get people to laugh at the king, they're no longer looking at the king the same way. If you get people to laugh at clerics who claim to be speaking on behalf of God, if you've gotten them to laugh, they're no longer looking at it the same way. So humor, wit, producing that laugh. Um, and there are in-jokes in the philosophical letters um, that one would have to be uh, an early modernist even sometimes to get that he's, he's talking about when the Circassians acquired and how the Circassians came to know about inoculation. And he says, well, we don't really know, though the Benedictines would produce an in-folio multi-volume edition telling us how. Well, th they're a group of, for Voltaire, pedantic clerical scholars working on trivial issues of pedantry and filling in footnotes. And he, he uh, just some argue that the Circassians took this custom from the Arabs. But we will let some learned Benedictine elucidate this historical fact, and he will not fail to fill several in folio volumes with proofs. Well, you're now laughing at the university professors. Uh, not always a bad thing. Uh, you're now laughing at um, a certain pedantic scholarly world. You can't be looking at it with the same reverence and respect. Beautifully said, Ellen, the, the, the way that humor is an antidote to the abuse of authority precisely for showing its limits. As soon as you laugh at it, you're already in a sense, your mind is already greater than the authority in a certain sense. And, uh, but that leads me to another question there that has come in twice now about whether Voltaire would see any structures to human consciousness or thinking. Uh, you know, I know he's a great critic of the idea of the innate ideas, but would he say that the human mind is a simply blank slate or does it have a nature prior to experience? He does hold that the mind is indeed a blank slate in terms of its knowledge of nature. But like Locke, he believes that the human mind is active and that the human mind has inherent logical qualities that lead it to think about identity, relationship, comparison. So the mind, the active human mind can frame, for example, has to frame hypotheses for testing of theory in natural philosophy and it doesn't acquire the test from its experience of the world, that's a, that's a logical problem uh, for 18th century thinkers. Uh, the results of the test are from uh, the world, but designing an experiment is irrational, empirical, 
use of of the mind. Once again, I fear I'm drifting from your question, Stephen. Not not at all. This is this is exactly the the question I wanted to to go into and uh, and lead, in fact, to another question that relates to this. What do you make about the similarities or differences between English empiricism and the contemporary understanding of quote lived experience end quote? Ah, um, now this assumes that I have a full grasp of what is meant by the modern notion of lived experience. I'm not sure I do, and I don't want to talk at cross purposes to 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 the question. But if the goal is systematic knowledge of nature that is useful to human beings in making their world less painful and better uh, and more stable and peaceful. If that's the goal, then you really do need, of course, to study much more than your own life. You need to study the lives of others. You need to study society. You need to study nature. And if by lived experience, one means the current tendency to draw uh, massive conclusions about the nature of the world, um, from one's minute experience uh, in it, that would not be the vision of knowing that that the enlightenment holds to. But lived experience, of course, matters matters a great deal, and you can appeal to people's lived experience the way Voltaire does in terms of illness, for example. Um, do you really have no compassion for? watching your loved ones suffer right in the inoculation argument but the goal here the vision is is quite large it's it's how do we acquire systematic knowledge of nature useful to the human experience now the next questioner says would voltaire's impression of england's tolerance be objective given the english treatment of catholics at the time uh what Voltaire is going to do is hone in on the relative toleration in England compared to what is happening on the continent. In the late 17th century in France, Protestantism is banned. It is outlawed. The children of Protestant marriages are deemed bastards incapable of inheriting with no legal right to inherit. Protestant ministers are subject to the death penalty. The situation of Catholics in England, they can't go to Oxford or Cambridge, right? But that's going to be true well into the mid 19th century. Um, they can't be members of parliament. This compared to torture unto death on the continent for religious dissidents, for Voltaire is something worth celebrating. They live together in peace. Catholics go about their lives in England unmolested, but that we will reach tomorrow. His sense of toleration is very, very much time bound. It's contextual. But the difference between the lack of toleration, on the religious toleration on the continent, 
And the growth of religious toleration in England is one of the most striking aspects. And it's why he begins next week's reading um, with the Quakers, who uh, certainly could not have survived in France. Well, I think that is an excellent place for us to conclude today, not because we've exhausted the questions here. There are many wonderful questions left, but I'm going to save those, some of them for next time. Dr. Kors, Alan, thank you so very much for this this marvelous lecture, this introduction to Voltaire, which we very much look forward to the sequel of just a week from now. Well, this has been my, my great privilege. I'm thrilled to be able to address people through Ralston College. And I want to thank everyone who chose to attend and hear this. I will see you all next week. Bye for now, everyone. You've been listening to the Ralston College podcast. Today's guest was the Enlightenment scholar and trenchant advocate of intellectual freedom, Dr. Alan Charles Kors. Dr. Kors will continue his exploration of Voltaire's philosophical letters in our next episode. In the meantime, you can review the sections which were the subject of this lecture by reading letters 11 through 17, or prepare for the next lecture by reading through letters 1 through 10. You can also read Professor Kors' latest academic monographs, Naturalism and Unbelief in Early Modern France, and Epicureans and Atheists in Early Modern France, which were both published by Cambridge University Press in 2016. You can also learn more about the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, which Dr. Kors co-founded, by visiting their website at thefire.org. Finally, I'm very pleased to mention that Ralston College has launched its first degree program, a one-year Master's in the Humanities, which starts on the island of Samos, Greece, this August. You can learn more on our website at www.ralston.ac. Be sure to sign up for our newsletter, and we'll be sure to let you know of future events like the lecture you heard today. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Till next time. <laughs>